from KALW San Francisco and PRX. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. When women act within their stereotype, we like them, but when they act without their stereotype, they are seen as bossy and intimidating. And to act outside of the stereotype is to act in what we traditionally think of as a man, so far more assertive, advocating for yourself. That's Leanne Meyer of the Carnegie Mellon Tepper School of Business and the Leadership and Negotiation Academy for Women, founded by Linda Babcock. Their goal is to close the leadership gap for women. So while we're all advocating to take back bossy like it's a good thing, apparently it isn't going to be an effective thing. So I asked Leanne, what happens when women act like men? As you rise, what starts happening, you're not being considered as much for certain projects. You're not as invited to participate in some teams. You're often not told the information that would be helpful for a project. So so there is a subtle backlash. I don't think people in workplaces are spending a lot of time going, oh, I'm really trying to be mean to you, but, but that you just suddenly start being cut out of opportunities. And so that's how it hurts your career. Okay. So when we act all bossy, we get left behind. How about when we want a promotion or a raise? Leanne told me that more women would rather go in for a root canal than to negotiate for themselves. A root canal! I'm Lauren Schiller, and this is Inflection Point. Leanne told me there are many things women can do to succeed when it comes to how we lead, how we negotiate, and how we get ahead within the constraints of our societal gender expectations. While she acknowledges that what the research shows and what her suggestions include may not line up with a typically feminist view of the world, they work people. So we should listen. And frankly, why are we so bent on acting like men anyway? So I think what we take very seriously is how do we give women the skill sets that we know will be successful, but at the same time, how do we change the environment? And so we can do that first on campus in terms of the case studies we use, the conversations we have, who are the leaders of the clubs, who are the alumni that our students are exposed to. So so there's internal structural things at the university we can do. And then what we do strongly through our exec ed offerings is where we work with corporate environments and focus on a lot of the things I think people are hearing about. And I know there's a lot of question on what the returns are, but we're doing a lot of unconscious bias training. So, So what are the biases and how do they play out? We're also working, for example, we bring some of our PhD students in to work with corporate clients and do research where you can look at, for example, we're working with a law firm at the moment, what do men's networks look like and women's networks? And we have the technology that illuminates those networks and see who will be making partner and who won't be and how they should build their networks differently. And and so to change the system, we, we have to absolutely address both the systems and structures that keep women in place. What do your performance management systems look like? What does recruitment look like? Where are the barriers in your organization that create that problem? And then how do we educate largely middle managers? Because that tends to be where the rubber meets the road on, on what are their biases and how they manage people differently. So we're doing both of those. How important is the network? 
It's vitally important. We, we we spend a lot of time talking with our women students about the network in the sense that we spend a lot of time talking to them that in the beginning stages of your career, for both men and women, it's not about the network largely. It's, it's about how good you are. And so to me, if anyone thinks of their career, the first stage of their career is marked by achievements. It's how good are you? How hard can you work? And do you deliver? And you rise very quickly. But then I think women often don't get the message that your career hits this point when when senior leaders are looking at you and they're assessing you based on what we would call your networks of influence. And if I want to take a product to a foreign country, do you have the networks to make that happen? If I want to up revenue, do you have enough people in your network who would buy the product? And so I think because women often lack the sponsors and mentors that they should have, they don't realize that, oh, now I need to shift what I spend my time on and I need to focus on building a network. And so they keep working harder and harder and get dismayed when they passed over. So I, I think there's absolutely a point in your career where you have to shift and say this is about my networks, who I'm connected to, and not in a, I think so often we see it in a shmami sales kind of working a room perspective, but it's not that. It's who am I connected to in the company that can make things easier for my team? Who am I connected outside that can help open up new markets? Who am I connected to intellectually that will give me a sense of what the new trends and opportunities are? And I I think we think it takes too much time to build it. We don't focus on it. We, we close down. We sit at at our desks at lunch and work and and I think I think we appreciate it for that we happy worker bees and we kept in middle management positions because we're not understanding that we've been judged on what our networks look like not how hard we're working okay so how how does one go about building a network and not in a shmarmy working the room <laughs> yes, kind of way yes so, <laughs> so, so that was my I, first thought so, too so, so, so to me I, th- I think there are two things first of all just internally in a company and I'm sure many of your listeners have heard about the difference between sponsorship and mentorship. And so I, I don't want to overwork the idea, but I really, as we know, women are over-mentored and under-sponsored. So I think women get a lot of attention from senior leaders who are often not, no longer in power positions. So these are sweet, nice people who care about your career, who advise you. They're not helpful to your career. So first of all, just very tactically, every person should know who their sponsor is in the organization. And your sponsor is someone who is normally two levels above you, either in your line of business, or it could be just outside your line of business, an area that's interested in. And a sponsor is someone who knows about the quality of your work and will pull you up into projects. So it's not someone who does things for you out of the goodness of their heart. They do them because you make them look good. And so so just at the most basic level, I think every person should know who is my sponsor. And, and and if you don't have a sponsor, who should be your sponsor? And the question is, look up, look two levels up and say, who's got power? And you'll know who that person is. And then it's how do you get your quality of work in front of them? And it's either sitting in new meetings, joining committees, volunteering to work on new projects where you know that person's involved so they get a sense of your work. That's the most important thing. Then externally, I... I love social media. I know that, you know, people think they've got to go out more and spend more time on a golf course or lunch or drinks after work. But you could be sitting in your jammies at home at night, sending articles to people that you think would be helpful to them or relevant, liking what they're posting, whether in LinkedIn or Facebook. We know how reciprocity works. People feel good if you like what they do. So I think social media allows women, if they want to be at home and not be out in the world or they feel introverted and it's not 
they're seeing to, to build relationship by sharing quality information, pointing people to things, congratulating them on success. as That to me is how you can build networks, joining nonprofit associations, joining your professional associations. But I think it's to understand that you need to be spending time doing that. So when you go, when you identify who you want your sponsor to be, if you don't already yeah. have one, yeah. do you let them know? No. <laughs> so, you just silently stalk them do. and start showing up you in front do. of them. No, you it's do. not stalking. That's totally like mischaracterization, Stop. I am sure. <laughs> but how yes. you don't tell them. No, you don't tell them. So a mentor, you tell. You meet someone and you say, you know, would you be my mentor? Can I meet you on a courtly basis? You meet them. You come with your agenda and your questions and they know you are their mentor. A sponsor is you just work to have a really constructive, positive relationship and you work to make sure they know how good your work is. However, the moment when you know a position is coming up or a job is opening up and you really want to be considered, then you go to your sponsor and you don't go, you're my sponsor. You just go to your sponsor and you go, please, I know you're going to be in the room discussing who the potential candidates are please put in a good word for me or know when the moments are that their their sponsorship, their word could help. And that's when you reach out to them and you don't even call them a sponsor, but because at that point they know who you are and they know what you're about and they want to support your work. So, that to me is how you would treat a sponsor. Okay. <laughs> Does that sound duplicitous? <laughs> no, okay. uh, no, I don't think it sounds okay. du- duplicitous. Okay. Um, right. it's, just, it's just so interesting in terms of figuring out how to maneuver. Yeah. So um, yeah. one of the things that I'm really fascinated about what you are an expert in is negotiation. Yeah. And I thought we could spend a few minutes talking about right. um, women's, how women feel about negotiation yes. from the research that you've seen and yes. done and 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 just how we can navigate that because it's yeah. such an important tool. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I did see a presentation that you gave a little while ago yeah. where you played a little game of would you rather? Yes. And I was wondering if you could just yeah. describe that yeah. here. So so this game was based on the work of Professor Linda Babcock who is at Carnegie Mellon University and is the co-founder of the Leadership and Negotiation Academy that I run. And how the game works is would you rather negotiate the price of a contract or have um, root canal treatment at your dentist. And what Linda's research shows is that women would really rather choose to go to the dentist than have to negotiate. And so so it's just alarming. Um, So historically, we do see that women tend to negotiate four times less often than men do for issues that have to do with advocating for themselves or furthering their own self-interest. So the big difference is, you know, a lot of women and a lot of your listeners will probably push back and go, oh, no, I ask. But but I would challenge those women to look. Women negotiate very well on behalf of others. And and I think it fits within the stereotype of women and it's really the protective mother bear. So we negotiate for our kids and our family and our teams and our colleagues, but we don't negotiate as much for ourselves. And often it's, it's four times less often and those are the things that are going to hold you back in terms of position and remuneration. So we're literally just not asking. Yes, but we're not asking because we're clever. And so, so the, this becomes the, the, the nuance and, and, the, and the, the tough part about negotiation. Women, to me, we, we don't ask because we socialize to be thoughtful and nice and not advocate for ourselves. And we are rewarded for not being pushy or bossy, all the things we called when we do negotiate for ourselves. So, so we're socialized. But at the same time, what all the new research is showing is women also don't negotiate because at a very... I think deep instinctual level we understand that we experience a very subtle backlash when we do ask. 
So we know that in some ways we actually may be hurting our career to ask. So we often choose not to ask just I think because we're smart. We know it's going to hurt our career. And what brand new research coming out of both Carnegie Mellon University and Pitts is showing women also don't ask if they know they won't be good at it. So so they know what they're good at and what they're not good at. And the problem is because of how we socialize, we often don't practice it enough. So we aren't good at some aspects of negotiation. So that's the reason we don't ask. So sometimes we're smart not to ask because we understand how the environment often doesn't support us asking. So what is the downside of, of negotiation then for women? Yeah, The downside is what we see because of the double bind in, in organizations and what that is, is when women act within their stereotype, we like them. But when they act without their stereotype, they are seen as bossy and intimidating. And to act outside of the stereotype is to act in what we traditionally think of as a man. So far more assertive, advocating for yourself, etc. And so what happens in environments, women start being seen as intimidating or bossy. And I'm using nice words. I mean, I've spent many years as an executive coach where I was asked to come in to coach women who basically didn't play nicely in the sandbox, but it was just because they they were using behavior typically associated with a man. And so as you rise, what starts happening, you're not being considered as much for certain projects. You're not as invited to participate in some teams. You're often not told the information that would be helpful for a project. So, so there is a subtle backlash. I don't think people in workplaces are spending a lot of time going, oh, I'm really trying to be mean to you, but but that you just suddenly start being cut out of opportunities. And so that's how it hurts your career. Hearing you say all of that makes me feel like I definitely would rather have the root canal. Yeah, I know. <laughs> no, I know. So what, so what, so what are women to do? Yeah. I mean, you were combating these stereotypes, yes. but we need to act within them in yeah. order to get ahead? Yeah. Is that so what you're saying? Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. And that's what's so frustrating. And, and so to me... When we speak, we work with a lot of women on negotiation, and so they and you and people listening are going to push back really hard on what I'm saying now because I think it is depressing. I think we want to change stereotypes, so we want to act counter, and the more we can act counter, how fabulous. But if we're in very traditional environments where we know we're being judged perhaps according to a stereotype and where we maybe know we bump up against an unconscious bind, I think that the two tricks... And there are tricks for women negotiating, and I understand it's disappointing. But but what we're saying is, is there are two things that, that you have to remember. And you, the one is, in a negotiation situation, stay, and I think it was um, a professor from University of Michigan called it relentlessly pleasant. And and so you can't get aggressive, and you can't get aggressive. And I, I'm watching you, and I know it drives <laughs> you crazy for me to say that. But, 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 but the trick is, in a traditional negotiation, women need to comport themselves differently. And so, so we use the moniker of relentlessly pleasant or niceness with insistence. So you don't back down, but you remain nice, which means you warm, you keep your smile on, you don't get aggressive, you don't shout. So, so it's, it's to learn to do that. And the second thing that we know women have to do is justify their ask. If they're asking for something for themselves, they have to give a reason why. And so if you're asking for an increase, it would be to say, you know, given my role, given these deliverables, given what other people are earning in the industry, Industry, it makes sense for me to earn this. So, so you justify, you can't just come in and say it's time for an increase, which a man can do. So so to me, it's, it's a very personal choice. You, you can, as one of my executive coaching clients put it, she walked out of one of negotiation where she practiced these two things, how to remain relentlessly pleasant, how to justify her ask. 
And she looked at me and she kind of rubbed her hands together and she was like, I feel just a little bit dirty. <laughs> and I'm not, I'm not saying you should do this, but, but, but I think we do need to understand the environments that we're in. And so, but what I do want to affirm, this is only when we're advocating for ourselves. When we're advocating on behalf of others, we can behave very differently because that's acting within the stereotype. So I can be far more vocal and assertive if I'm advocating for my children or for my team or for someone else. So, so, so then we don't need to worry about this. This is when we advocate for ourselves. And, and so, so absolutely, to your point, it's so frustrating because we keep playing within a stereotype that ultimately is not successful. But what I, I do want to say, my most disappointing th- thing about this is that we know that the backlash against women comes from men and women equally. So, so this is not men who are doing this to women. So this is women doing it to one another. And so I think, well, what I'm very aware of is if a woman negotiates with me and a man negotiates with me, am I responding differently because of my own biases? And I would just encourage all of us to think if we want to change the system, every time someone negotiates to challenge ourselves and say, am, am I responding differently because I think she shouldn't? Yeah, th- that to me is what we need to do. So I, I mean, I've had a, a, a decently long career. I've had many opportunities for negotiation. Some have gone well, some have gone mm-hmm. less well. And I, I finally have determined, I, I'm, I'm sharing all my secrets with future people I'm negotiating <laughs> with, but if I write down in advance yes. what I want yes. and what I want to say, yes. I it gives me way less wiggle room to negotiate yes. with myself in the middle of the conversation. Yes. Um, but I also find that being on the phone is so much easier because I can have those notes in front of me, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like my little cheat sheet. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I found tactics that have worked yes. f- for me. I'm sure it's, you know, I'm still only know like 20% of the things a person yeah. should know. So what what are some things yeah. that you tell yeah. women yeah. to do in order to prepare? So, so first of all, what to me is wonderful, what you're saying is, is because I think women don't like to negotiate. So they avoid thinking about it. So they're not very prepared and they don't, as you've done, map it out, ask their questions. So to me, I would encourage all your listeners to Google negotiation planning templates. And it sounds silly, but if you Google that, you'll be amazed at what comes up. And any of these templates just help you really think through a negotiation. And, and that's what you're doing. And what the data shows very clearly, that's that's the biggest way to be successful in a negotiation. So I'm, I'm talking about smiling and being nice, but, but more importantly, truly, is how well prepared are you? To your point, have you thought through what you want? Have you thought through what they want? What are the real interests? What is your bottom line? What is the other person's bottom line and we don't want to do it we avoid it but it's it's the best thing you could do is to really map out the negotiation so I would really encourage everyone just to google and and there are multiple templates and you can use any of them and and what to me has been interesting as I said we run a, a negotiation academy and we often go back to our clients and say what did you value most and so many of them keep the template we use in their top drawer and they'll show it because it's just a very quick way to go through what's all at stake and why do I feel about each of these things so so that that's as fabulous that you're doing that the, the phone call to me is interesting because 
there are pros and cons to a phone call. I think what a phone call does for women is that it, it takes away some of, to your point, the emotion, the anxiety around being there. You can look at your notes, but it also slows down a negotiation because you phone, they often think about it. If, if you face to face, you hurry up a negotiation. So I think it would be more... What are you feeling from a timing perspective in terms of do you want to quickly agree or do you want to slow it down because you're playing for time or you want to think about it? So, so no, I, I love your user, but there are pros and cons to that. And I think it would depend very much on the negotiation. But to your point, I, I think you, we can play with tactics, but the most important thing remains preparing for a negotiation. And we just don't do that. What about this notion of negotiating with yourself, where I, yeah. someone, someone used that term with me a number yeah. of years ago, and yeah. it was it was basically like, don't talk yourself down from what you think you should really get yes. before you even get in the conversation. Let yes. them do that. Yes. Can, can you talk so, about that a bit? Yeah. So, so what's to me is interesting is when we, we talk about what you should ask for, and what the data shows us is that men tend to ask for 30 more than a woman. So often we encourage our women to think about what they would be asking for and then add 30% to that. So just <laughs> yes. use that as your starting point. Absolutely, and let the other team come down. So we would encourage a 30% hike in what you're asking for. Then we call it the giggle test. So, so can you really say that out loud without cracking up? Because if you're asking for too much that it's almost ridiculous and you start laughing, you can hurt trust at the beginning of a relationship because someone's coming in, you have this ridiculous ask and it sort of, it creates a, a, a distrust situation. So, so that's the one thing. Does it pass the giggle test? And then what I encourage is maybe not even negotiate with yourself, go to a male colleague and say, do you think this is a fair ask? Someone who you trust? Because then again, you're helping get almost a parity starting point as opposed to a, let, a lesser starting point. Well, are we genetically predispositioned to this or is this like <laughs> no, no. we're, I mean, I, I've got two daughters yeah. I'm raising, you know, yeah. I'm trying to have conversations with yeah. them about like, you know, you can do and be anything you want, yeah. but you're going to run into the system yeah. that doesn't necessarily agree, yeah. but you're really smart, but they're not going to see it or they're not going to want to hear it. Or, you know, there's yeah. this sort of constant yes. like back and forth yes. and back and forth. So, and you're catching women at the yes. time when they've already gone through, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. they've grown up, they're yeah. 18 and over, yeah. right? So, yeah. um, you know, yeah. is there <laughs> is there anything that we yeah. can sort of like, is there a trickle down effect here? Like, how do oh, we I, do I that? think there is. I, I think what to me is so. I think so. What to me is interesting. I work so in the women's space, but I only have sons, which I think I was not trusted to bring up daughters because I, I think it is so complicated. What are the messages? Yes, but no, but and that I think is what women are feeling in workplaces: too much this way, not enough this way. Like, I'm too of this and not enough of that. So I, I think it is very, very difficult. I think when it comes to negotiation, though, it's teaching women how to advocate for themselves. That that's the difference. And so it, it's not a genetic predisposition. It's, <laughs> we are socialized, and and if you look to me, I, I think that's always fascinating when you look at from the beginning how we socialize to be thoughtful and kind and nice and not to this and not pushy and not advocates and someone will take care of us. And so to me, the, the, the biggest trick, I think, is around how do we teach women at any stage to keep knowing what they want and, and asking for that and, and how do they ask in a way that's appropriate to the environment that they're in. And, and to me, that, that would be the focus. Yeah. So what is, where do we go from here? I mean, do we, yeah. <laughs> is yeah. it about talking about it more and being more realistic about the yeah. way that men and women actually perceive each other in the yeah. workplace? I think it's complicated in America 
because of um, sort of litigious environment. So I think you've also got to be careful here. I think this is the problem. But I I think where we go from here and what the data is really showing us is that we really need to look at structural changes. So it's how do we recruit women that's gender blind? How do we create environments where all people can thrive? And, And I think we're starting to see structural things that change. It's so hard to constantly address our deep biases that come from years of socialization and maybe reinforced by what we believe as families. And, and so I think it's more helpful to, to go to, to make people aware of what biases they could have, but really how, how do we just how do we debias a system? So from how people apply to how they are assessed in terms of performance to how comfortable they feel, what are the things that we can change from the beginning? And I think we're starting to see good research around that. Because what, what the data is very clear is we're spending a lot of money on trying to address biases and with very little success at the moment, I yeah. think. Well, what's the best advice that you've been given about keeping a rich network in a way that makes you feel good, that makes everyone that's part of that network feel good? Is is that I think I think we feel for our networks it's about us and we've got to be interesting and we've got to connect instead of going, wow, how blessed are we to have all these interesting people in our network? And it's about reaching out and maintaining relationship as opposed to using. I, I think all it's to reach out and go, how can I share something within my network that makes a real difference to them? And so I think if we see it more from a, a giving perspective, I think that makes it more helpful. Great. Well, thank you so much, Leanne. Thank you very much. Thank you. That was Leanne Meyer of the Carnegie Mellon Leadership and Negotiation Academy for Women. One way to respond to Leanne's advice is to be depressed. How can women ever win if we have to play by these archaic stereotypes? The other way to take it is total elation. I was always told to be myself. And my dad always told me to be generous because the world gives you back what you put into it. So what I'm hearing Leanne Meyer say is act like a woman which is awesome because I am a woman. And now the world can hear me roar and it won't be from a root canal. This is how women rise up. This is Inflection Point. I'm Lauren Schiller. Support for this podcast comes from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.